Would you do so? Let me encourage you to join me now in taking your copy of God's Word, God's perfect and inerrant Word. We'll turn together back to the book of Acts for our passage for this morning and throughout our week, Acts 7, verses 54 through 60. So Acts chapter 7, verses 54 through 60. As you can tell, as you turn there, this passage is a lot shorter than the one last Lord's Day. If you're familiar with the biblical story of of Stephen, then this is probably the part you are most familiar with, and that's the the telling of his martyrdom. Uh, Stephen is known as the first martyr of the church, means he was the first Christian in the early church to die for the Christian faith. Persecuted by the enemies of God and killed for being a Christian and for doing Christian things. I want us to think for a moment about what we have read so far about Luke describing Stephen. It's been a very simple description of him. He says simply that Stephen was a faithful Christian man. He was one of the first deacons in the early church. He would go to the temple to, to share and teach the gospel and was engaged in gospel ministry. It's a very, very simple description of who Jesus is. And he's not, Luke isn't saying that, that, that Stephen was a perfect man. We're going to talk more about this here in a few moments. Stephen wasn't perfect. He was just faithful. He loved Jesus because he knew Jesus first loved him. He followed Jesus because he trusted that Jesus is a good shepherd. Really all Luke is doing is describing normal, ordinary, biblical Christianity. I think our day and age, we, we, we've watched uh, the corrosion of faith and the connection of faith, the adherence to the faith, the faithfulness to faith, erode down to such a point that we read somebody like Stephen and we go, wow, he's a superstar. He's not. This is just normal, ordinary, biblical Christianity. And here's Stephen. He's a faithful Christian man. He lives out the Christian faith. He teaches the gospel. He engaged in gospel ministry. And we find this is what made the religious leaders call the Sanhedrin mad. They can't stand Stephen. He's a normal, ordinary Christian. So as we read before, the Sanhedrin huddled together and they, and they come up with lies. They have this plan of lying. They're good at lying. They did it against Jesus. They make up these lies of false charges that Stephen has blasphemed God in the temple. And those are very serious charges. And last week, we looked at how Stephen answered those charges and giving an overview of the Old Testament. And he really looked at the, the patriarchs and, and, the, and the prophets and how God works in them outside the temple. He's reminding these religious leaders, the people who should know that the scholars of the Bible, that, that God isn't constrained to the Holy of Holies in the temple. That what God's able to do isn't just constrained there, but throughout their history, the history that they should have known, the history that they had taught, that God had been working outside the temple, beginning with Moses onward. And led us to the question of, uh, for ourselves, the blessings of evidence that God's given us, what have we done with that? What have we done with all these blessings of God and the evidence of who he is and what he's done? What have we done with Jesus Christ? And that's part of what Stephen is challenging the Sanhedrin with. As we'll see here in a moment, this challenge provokes a certain reaction from religious leaders that leads to a very violent outcome. We'll see that in our passage. Let's, let's take some moments to pray together now. 
Lord, we come to you this morning and we pray we will not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. Help us to hear. Help us pay careful attention to the reading and preaching of your word. May your spirit be here to help us to hear and to convince, convince us to act. This is not just Bible story time that we move on from. We are meeting with you in your word. Where two or more are gathered, you promise to be there. You are here. This is your word. Bless the reading and preaching and hearing of it, and all for your glory. We pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts 7, verses 54 through 60, and we will stand together now for the reading of God's word. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him, but he, being Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out, and they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. The grass withers and the flowers fade. The word of our God stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. So a few years ago, my, my family introduced me to this movie, Inside Out. It's a, it's a Pixar movie, and it's about a young girl named Riley. And Riley's family is moving from, I believe, Michigan down to San Francisco. And as you know, as a teenage girl, she's going to struggle with that. But the movie, it, it centers around uh, the working of her, of her thoughts and her emotions. It matches Matter of fact, the, the emotions are personified. There, there's joy, fear, anger, disgust, and sadness. And I will say, if you've never seen this movie, I, I really highly recommend it. It's, it's a cute little movie, but it does well in dealing with emotions realistically. Uh, that there's a, there, there's a place in our life for sadness. There's a place in our life for fear and those sort of things. But part of the story revolves around Riley, who I said is 12, year old, 12 years old. And she has an imaginary boyfriend. And this imaginary boyfriend serves as a source of comfort for her during these, these trying times. And Whenever she would imagine her boyfriend, she would always imagine him proclaiming or declaring his forever love to her with the phrase, I would die for Riley. Right? This, this, this 12-year-old proclamation of love from her imaginary boyfriend, I, I, would, I would die for Riley. And that gave her comfort during those trying times. You know, we think about it. Who wouldn't love and enjoy and appreciate that comfort of love? That comfort of love proclaimed in such a way. And someone, I, I love you so much, I would die for you. you know, some part of our heart yearns for that sort of love because we were created for that sort of love. We were created in the image of God, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit, we are created to have relationship with Him. And because of sin, that relationship was severed. And the only way that relationship could be made whole, could be healed, is through the death of Jesus. 
It's a biblical love. We think of John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus is describing there to us the sort of love he has for us because he calls us friends. And because he calls us friends, because we are his friends, he then lays down his life for us. And that gives us another dimension on the cross, doesn't it? And the cross is not just there because Jesus has some sort of obligation to go out there, to some sort of mere duty, something to get it done. No, he explains to us that he went on the cross because he loves you and he loves me. Loves us so much that he calls us friends. So therefore, as our friend, he lays down his life for us. You and I were made for that sort of love, that sacrificial love of our friend Jesus. That is the comfort of our faith. Jesus calls me friend. And because he calls me friend, he dies for me. We read our passage this morning about another death. It's the death of Stephen. It's a violent death. It's a a gruesome death. It's a death that's been instigated by false shepherds and carried out by the hands of an enraged mob. But there's a greater why at work here in Stephen's death. He was killed... Because he's a friend of Jesus. He's been killed because Jesus called him friend and laid down his life for him. Stephen is killed for Jesus and the gospel. That's why all this is happening to Stephen. It's not that Stephen's just coming onto their territory. They are killing Stephen because Stephen is a friend of Jesus. Stephen, who's this normal, ordinary, faithful Christian man who loved Jesus first and most, would dare share the gospel of his friend, would dare teach the gospel of his friend, would dare be active in the gospel ministry of his friend. And so when he is called out on his faith, even with his wife on his line, Stephen would not concede, he would not betray his friend, he would not back down from the gospel. No, Stephen, loving the one who called him friend and died for him, could not imagine backing down from the gospel of his friend. Or being ashamed of his friend. Or being quiet about his friends. Matter of fact, he's willing to live like his friends. To lay down his life for the truth and the beauty of Christ in the gospel. Because his Jesus was willing to die for him. Even when he was an enemy of God. Even when he was so much more in love with his sin and following after Satan. Jesus called him friend. Lay down his life for him. This is why Stephen died. He died as a friend of Jesus. He died for the glory of his friend. He died for the one who loved him and died for him. Stephen died as a normal, ordinary Christian whose friend was Jesus. It was this this faith that produced such a visceral reaction from the Sanhedrin. Again, it was Stephen's faith that the religious leaders were acting to because it was from that faith that he was teaching, sharing, and, and ministering the gospel. And so we, we see, we've heard the charges. We, we've read about Stephen's response to the charges. Look again. Let's look again at how these supposed religious leaders reacted to Stephen's answer to the made-up charges. It says, now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. That's quite a reaction, isn't it? And we need to remember that Luke wrote this. Luke went out and did interviews. He, he got all the information on this 
But Luke was a doctor. And Luke was trained to be intentional and thorough, even with the words that he used. So the words he's using here to describe the reaction of the Sanhedrin were intentional and thorough. So the Sanhedrin, they're not just disturbed. They're not aggravated. They don't like this other uh, opinion. They're not, put, not slightly perturbed. No, Stephen says they were, I'm sorry, Luke says they were enraged. We're talking about a rage that, that flows throughout their whole, be- their whole being, a rage that they have a, a bodily reaction to. And, and their bodily reaction of rage is to the fact that Jesus, or, sorry, that Stephen shared God and his word with them. They are enraged. Have you ever been so angry that your anger seemed to take over your body? Have you ever made someone so angry that, that you see them transform like the, the old Hulk show? Was it Lou Ferrega that, that played? Or remember the last time I played? Did you see him like transform like the incredible Hulk, the, the, the anger taking over their whole body? I seem to have a gift that I can elicit that reaction from my family. And my mom can probably tell you stories about this, but I can vividly remember making my parents so mad that it changed their whole countenance. And I would think, you know what? It'd probably be good if I shut my mouth right now and stop doing what I'm doing before they killed me. To their credit, they never killed me. Probably wanted to, but they never did. Even earlier in our marriage, I remember doing the same to Beth it was during a trip to Walmart of all places. We're leaving and I wouldn't shut up and, and she said some things to me and I thought, we've been married for two weeks and I'm going to make this woman divorce me. But when we've seen that reaction, it's a scary reaction, isn't it? The, the, the anger takes them over and that's what Luke is describing here. They're not just put out, they're not just aggravated, they're not just perturbed. They're, they're so enraged by God and the truth that all they can do is, is grind their teeth at Stephen. It's not a good situation for him. But look next at Luke's intentional and deliberate wording of what happens. Look again, verse 55. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazes in heaven, sees the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. What a, this is an amazing reaction, isn't it? The religious leaders are so mad at him, all they can do is grind their, te- grind their teeth. Their faces are like purple. The spit are coming out. The nerves are sticking out in their forehead. And what Stephen do? He looks into heaven and tells them, I see Jesus. I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Again, Luke makes sure to describe Stephen as being full of the Holy Spirit. And again, not that Stephen is some sort of a super Christian above the rest of us. He's just describing a man who's serious about God and, and serious about his faith. He's just a normal, ordinary Christian. This is Luke's shorthand way of describing Stephen's faithful faithfulness. And in that faithful faithfulness, Stephen is, is blessed by God with, with a view into heaven. And first thing we're told is that he sees the glory of God. I mean, you can think of stories in the Bible such as Moses wanting to see the, the glory of God. And, 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 and so God puts him into the cleft of the rock and, and puts his hand over the rock until he, he gets past it. And so Stephen can, or I'm sorry, Moses can then only see the, the backside of God's glory. 
We can think of, of Jesus being transfigured to his heavenly glory. Uh, and, and the disciples of the Mount and Transfiguration seeing that. We can think of Isaiah and his vision of the glory of God. And, and that's what Luke is able to see here. He is blessed by God able to look into heaven. A window in heaven has been opened. He's able to look there and to see the glory of God. But there's something else here I want us to focus on this morning. I believe it's deliberately included in this text. I want you to look again at your Bible. And I want you to tell me what Luke what Luke says that Jesus is doing at the right hand of God. What is, what is the posture of Jesus at the right hand of God? Somebody throw out the answer when you find it. Standing. Keep that in your mind. Because here in a few moments, we're, we're going to do like we do every week. We're going to confess our faith in the Apostles' Creed. And what's the posture of Jesus at the right hand of the Father in the Creed? Jesus sitteth. Those are two different postures, aren't they? They're standing and they're sitting. One right, one wrong. Have we been confessing the wrong thing for hundreds of years now? Did, did Luke get something wrong here? Well, no, they're, they're both right. Usually Jesus is said to be sitting at the right hand of God because his work of atonement is finished. We see that passage as Romans 8, Colossians 1, and, and Hebrews 10. Jesus is sitting because his work is done. But here in our passage, Luke is intentionally and deliberately saying that Jesus is standing. Why would he do that? And I'll say for two reasons. Jesus is standing because Jesus is king. Remember, that's one of the offices of Jesus, prophet, priest, and, and king. King Jesus is standing. Because one of his subjects is being attacked. One of his own, who he purchased by his own life, purchased by his own blood, one of his own is being attacked for the sake of his king. And the king is now standing. It's a posture of action. It's a proclamation that King Jesus knows what's going on and something will be done. Vindication will be his. He is standing to indicate, <coughs> excuse me, standing to indicate that his enemies will one day have to face him for what they have done. Many of us in here remember 9-11. And remember the days following and the, uh, uh, the overall feeling of, of patriotism that was throughout our nation. Because our nation had been attacked. And it was bringing us together. And so just a few days after the World Trade Centers had collapsed, President George Bush went to the site. If you remember this, he was standing on rubble with some of the first responders around him, and he's addressing the crowd of first responders who have been there since this happened, and they're working 24 hours a day to go through the rubble to try to hopefully find a victim or to find a, to find a survivor at that time. And as President Bush is addressing the crowd, someone yells out, We can't hear you. In response, President Bush says, I can hear you. The rest of the world hears you. And the people who knock down these buildings will soon hear from all of us. That was a chilling moment. Because the leader of our nation is standing there. And he's promising that something we've done against our enemies. He's standing there as president saying, you attacked my nation. And you attacked my people. And there will be a price to be paid for. 
King Jesus is standing here because one of his own is being attacked by his enemies. It's a promise of action against his and our enemies. He is standing in promise of action for his people. The other reason he's standing is because he is the good shepherd. And the good shepherd is preparing to welcome home Stephen. This is one of his flock. Jesus left the 99 to go after that one. Called him friends. Went on the cross for Stephen. And all Stephen did was love his Jesus and share the gospel. Now being killed for it. And the shepherd stands to welcome him home. He stands there as one to welcome the one back. To call him home and to be there to welcome him as the good shepherd. I think when we pause and think about this, it's quite the picture of this. Here on one side we have the king standing He's ready to act and defend. There's a plan already in place in effect. And, 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 and he will take action upon his enemies and our enemies. The king is standing. But then our shepherd is standing as well. Ready to welcome his sheep home to that eternal joy, grace, and comfort. That's the last vision Stephen has of his Jesus before he stands in front of his Jesus. And this is our Jesus, our King and our Shepherd. When we share in the same faith as Stephen, that normal, ordinary, biblical Christianity. Stephen's vision of Jesus in heaven serves as the floodgates bursting open. The same people who had instigated the death of Jesus because he claimed to be the Son of Man are now instigating the death of Stephen for loving and following the Son of Man. And so Luke tells us that they, they drag Stephen out of the city and they get him outside the walls of Jerusalem and the leaders along with others take up these sizable rocks to throw at Stephen all with the express purpose of killing him. We don't, know, we don't need to go into much other details for us to know that this is violent, that this is gruesome. It's a horrible way to die. But yet in the middle of this, Luke tells us that Stephen is able to utter two prayers. Lord Jesus, receive my spirits. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. We have this picture of normal, ordinary, faithful Christian man being killed in a horrible, gruesome way and his belief in Jesus never wavered. As the stones beat and battered his body, Stephen cries out in prayer for Jesus to receive his spirit, his faith never wavered. And then on his knees, before he falls over in death, beaten, battered, he prayed for their forgiveness. Stones hitting him. They're delighting his death. They're enjoying the spectacle. Stephen prays for their forgiveness. His faith never wavered. But do these prayers remind you of something else? Jesus on the cross where he prayed for the Father to receive his spirits and then prayed for forgiveness for the very ones who were killing him and delighting in it. What could move Stephen to pray in such a way? The answer is Jesus. Jesus was his friend. 
as his friend, he died for him. And he prayed for Stephen as a friend. So Stephen could trust in Jesus. He could pray for forgiveness because he knew Jesus loved him first, loved him as a friend, and trusted faith to him. And he could pray for others that way. And he could pray for the Lord to receive his spirit. And the thing is, we know that Jesus answered these prayers. We know that Jesus entered into the eternal home with his Lord and Savior. But there was somebody there who was ultimately forgiven. Did you pick up on who that was? As one whose garments they laid at the feet of. The one who approved his execution. It was Saul. As we'll read here in a few chapters, what happens to Saul? He meets the resurrected Jesus. He's forgiven of his sins. He becomes Paul. Jesus answered these prayers. What a life. What a faith. And what a death. And I think, as I said earlier, in the erosion of Christian morality and Christian ethics and Christian faith, especially in the American church, it's easy for us to look at Stephen and put him on a pedestal and say, we just rationalize him away. He's some sort of super Christian. That's unattainable. Right? We can't be like that. That's living and acting in a way that just isn't realistic for, for people like us in 2023 living in Winsboro, South Carolina. There's no way, no way we could be like Stephen. It's kind of like the devil saying, or serpent saying that to Eve. Did God really say? Wouldn't it be one of the greatest tricks of the devil? For God to put these examples of faith for us in the Bible and we go, too holy. Too much of a holy roller. There are no super Christians. Stephen is just like you and me. Born in sin. Born dead in sins and trespasses. Once an enemy of God. Once rebelled against God's law and his will. Stephen needed a savior just like you and I do. And in response to the love and grace of God, Stephen committed himself to Jesus as his Lord. He trusted and obeyed. And we sing this, we know why. Because there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. So Stephen stands here as a model, not of some extraordinary faith that we can only you know, cross our fingers and wish for. He stands there as a model of norm, normal, ordinary faith for you and me. To love Jesus first and most because Jesus loves us so. To follow after Jesus because that's the best expression of love for Jesus we can live. To trust in Jesus because he is so trustworthy. And in that faith, we can have now this eternal confidence that we confess every week that Jesus is now at the right hand of the Father. He's there as our King, as our Shepherd, and as our Advocate. We can have this confidence that Jesus is ruling as king of your faith and life. As the one who will lead you, the one who will rule and defend you, as the one who will restrain and conquer all his and all our enemies. And there is no better king for us to have than King Jesus. And in that normal, (coughs) excuse me, that normal ordinary faith, we can have that confidence that Jesus is my king. 
And we can also have this eternal confidence that He is my shepherd who loves me, who cares for me, who has gone in front of me, who will always lead me on the right and good path. Sometimes it is through the valley of the shadow of death, but I will fear no evil, right? Why? Because the good shepherd's rod and staff, they comfort me. He's the shepherd who left the 99 to come after you. He's the shepherd who left the 99 to come after you to call you friend. He's the shepherd who left the 99 to come after you to go to call you friend so he can go on the cross as the perfect lamb to save you. In that faith, we know he stands there as our advocate as well who prays for us night and day, who gladly looks to the Father and says, he or she is mine. And here are the marks of my body to, prove as, to serve as proof of my great love for him or her. It's in that normal, ordinary faith that we can have this eternal confidence that Jesus is my King. Jesus is my Shepherd. Jesus is my Advocate. And he's now at the right hand of the Father. That's the biblical faith. That's the faith that is best summarized at the end of our earthly life. Well done, good and faithful servants. A faith seen in a life of faith, love and obedience to our King, Shepherd and Advocate. A faith that we hope will make Jesus stand to welcome us home. Let's pray together.